Father, we thank you that you are uh, the just judge um, in whom there is no injustice. And uh, we uh, thank you that we can trust you um, to bring about your justice. Father, help us now as we uh, consider how to live in this world uh, where there is injustice. Um, we pray that you'll speak to us uh, and show us um, how you want us to live uh, as your servants. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, over the past few weeks, uh, we've been working with 1 Peter. Uh, and we've seen some, some incredible things, haven't we? We saw from uh, the first couple of verses of the book that, that we are elect strangers. As far as God's concerned, we are elect. That is, we are chosen. Chosen by God. Uh, to belong to Him. To be holy. As far as the world is concerned, we are strangers. We are different. And we act different because we are different. Holy ones set apart to belong to God. Our hope, we saw, is in, is in the inheritance that is laid up in heaven for us. And we have been redeemed, we have been rescued from the empty way of life, handed down from our forefathers with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without defect or blemish. We've seen that we are living stones in God's temple, configured around Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And we are all priests in his temple, offering the spiritual sacrifices of what we say and what we do in love for God in each area of our lives. And because we are strangers, because we belong in heaven, because we are God's holy temple, because we are God's chosen people, we must live in a way that is consistent with that. We must be holy in our conduct as we've been made holy in our being. And so Peter urges us in verse 11 of chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. See, our sinful desires, or otherwise translated passions of the flesh, things that we want to do, even though we know they're wrong, they're like soldiers inside us. And they're waging war against us. I don't for one minute think that our sinful desires are on our side. They're not. If it's sinful, it's bad for us. It's bad like having an enemy soldier loose in your camp with his machine gun. Right? Peter says we have to abstain. We keep away from them. We don't harbor them. We don't encourage them. We don't toil with them. They are the enemy. We fight them. For what we do with our sinful desires on the inside affects how we live on the outside. And verse 12 tells us how we ought to live on the outside. It says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now the word translated lives there um, is, the, is the word for way of life or conduct or way of behaving. And back in chapter 1 verse 18 Peter says that we were saved from the empty way of life that was handed down to us from our forefathers. And now Peter says let your way of life, your conduct, the, the way you go about doing your, your business, the way you go about living your life, let that be good. Let your conduct be exemplary. Because you're on show. The world is watching you. 
The nations or the Gentiles who are not yet part of God's people, they are looking at your behavior. And Peter says, let your way of life among them be good. So that even though people talk bad about you, by looking at your good works, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Now notice what the assumption Peter makes here. He assumes that people will talk bad about us. Literally, they will talk against us as evildoers. That's an interesting assumption, isn't it? Friends, if we follow Jesus, if we live as his temple, if we give him the spiritual sacrifices of our lives, if, if we make him known to others, then, then we can be sure of two things. Firstly, people will see our good deeds. And secondly, people will talk bad about us. That's just the way things are. And Peter says, doesn't matter if people talk bad about you, if you live an honorable, blameless life. So that in the end, they might give glory to God on the day of visitation. Now what is this day of visitation that Peter's talking about us? Well, um, some people think it's the day when God visits us in terms of the preaching of the gospel. Okay, God calls people by his word, and on that day, having seen the life of the believers, they will respond and give glory to him. That's, that's one view. The good thing about it is it's consistent with what's about to come up in 1 Peter. Uh, many things it calls us to hear is so that people will see our lives and are drawn to the faith. However, the Bible usually uses the word day for, if it's talking about the day of something, it's usually talking about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. Uh, in fact, the only other part of the Bible where the day of visitation is used uh, is in Isaiah 10 verse 3, uh, which our NIVs translate a day of reckoning. It's a time when God will bring judgment on Israel. And it's the day, so it seems to me that the day of visitation is that when God comes to save his people and judge the world, when, when God comes to visit, so to speak. Uh, that is, when, when Jesus returns. Peter says we ought to live such good lives among the pagans that they may see our good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. If we want it to be still consistent with um, what's coming up in 1 Peter, uh, we can say it's, it's referring to the influence uh, of a consistent Christian lifestyle. That is, if people constantly see our good works and are eventually saved as a result, that on the day of judgment, they will give glory to God for what he has done. God will be glorified by, by them on that day when he comes to judge and save. See, they will say, what a great and merciful God he is uh, for bringing Fiona and Christine and, uh, and Rubina into my life because they lived in such a good way before my eyes uh, that even though I bitched about them, it made me want to find out about the Lord Jesus and the gospel and then I was saved. So live such good lives among pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Then Peter goes on to apply this principle in four areas of life. He applies it to our relationship with the government authorities in chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. 
Uh, he applies it with people at the workplace in verses 18 to 25, with our spouses at home in chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, and then within the Christian community in chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. Uh, looking at the first two today, and we'll look at the second two next week. Firstly then, uh, Christians and the government in verses 13 to 17. Do you notice the government realized that we were talking about this today? So they organized a nice parade for us. To, to <laughs> Peter makes three points here. Right? Firstly, we are to submit to those in authority. Uh, verses uh, 13 to 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as a supreme authority, or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Now when Peter was writing this, the emperor, the Roman emperor, was certainly not a Christian and not particularly friendly towards Christians. Uh, but that's not the point. Peter says his readers were to submit to the authorities, whether it was to the, the central imperial authority in Rome or to the local governors appointed by him even if they were pagans and even if they were persecutors and so friends we are to submit to those in authority whether we like them or not and whether they like us or not and whether or not we think they're doing a good job right? it's not the issue they are the authorities that God has instituted among us and we are to submit to them and what will it mean for us to submit to your authorities well I think the answer to that question will be different depending on the society we live in. Right? Our society in Malaysia is based on the principle of rule of law. Right? Some people don't think so, uh, but uh, Anita, who is a lawyer, assures me that really it is. Right? So submission to the authorities means obeying the law. And not just the good ones, but also the bad ones. The ones we don't agree with. Now, we think it's a bad law that we can't drive at 100 kilometers an hour down certain roads, but, but that's a law we have to submit to. We may think it's not fair that Microsoft gets all this money from me to use their software. You know, Bill Gates has got plenty, hasn't he? But the law of copyright is the law. And so we must obey it. Now, at one level, these are trivial examples. Of course, we must obey traffic laws and copyright laws. We shouldn't be speeding and buying pirated DVDs. We, we know that. But what about the cases when the law is really unjust and unfair? Well, in that case, we need to work within the law to change the law. And not to take the law into our own hands. Right? The law provides avenues to work for change. And if we can't get change by those avenues, we have to suffer patiently in a godly way. If we think that governments are unjust or unfair, then we have to work within the law to change them. It's provided for within the law. But Christians are certainly never called upon and never allowed to try to sow the seeds of civil unrest or try to overthrow legitimate government by revolution or violence or, or anything like that. We submit to those in authority and obey the law of our land. The second thing that Peter affirms is that we're to do it for the Lord verses 13 and 14. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. It's for the Lord's sake. See, our submission is not for the sake of the authorities themselves. Right? They may or may not be deserving of such submission, but we are to do it for Jesus. 
for his glory and his gospel. We submit to the secular authorities out of our reverence for Christ. But how does the Lord benefit from our submission to those in authority? Why should we do it for his sake? Well, Peter tells us in verse 15. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. By deliberately submitting to the government, Christians show that we are good citizens. We're not a threat to order in society. We don't promote violence or revolution. We're good for the country, not bad for it. And we do good, not evil, in society. And so we make a positive contribution to the social order. We help those in need. We aid those in trouble. We do good in the community. And we live as exemplary, law-abiding citizens. And when we do that, we show up our critics. As far as the social order is concerned, they have no excuse for limiting the spread of the gospel. We submit to those in authority for the sake of the Lord. Now, if our submission is for the sake of the Lord, then we do so willingly. It's not a submission that has to be forced on us by society. We obey the law because God wants us to obey the law, not because there might be a policeman around the corner. We pay our taxes because God wants us to pay our taxes, not because we're afraid of getting caught cheating by the tax department. And we do good in society because that's what God wants us to do, not because we're forced to. And so our submission and our doing good is freely given. That's what Peter talks about in verse 16. In order to make sense of that, uh, I'll need to tell you a couple of things about the translation. Firstly, verses 14 to 16 are actually one long sentence. So Peter is actually continuing his thoughts in verses 14 and 15 to 16. And secondly, the word live that you see in the NIV there is not actually in the Greek. So in verse 16 you should simply say, as free people and not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, etc. So, but do what as free people? Not live as free people? Well, it goes back to either do good in verse 15, or to even goes all the way back to submit yourselves in verse 13. That is, Peter's either telling us to do good as free people, or to submit ourselves to the authorities as free people. Either way, he's saying our con- contribution to society is freely given not to be forced on us by society we freely do good we freely obey the law and if we freely and voluntarily obey the law then no policeman has to come up to us and tell us to obey it see we already are freely and the freedom that we have the capacity we have to make choices we use that freedom to obey the law and do good And we don't use it to do evil. Why? Because that's not what God wants us to do. For while we are not society's slaves, we are in fact God's slaves. And so, as our translation puts at the end of verse 16, we live as servants of God. And friends, in the end, that's why we submit to the authorities. Not because they force us to, but because God, our Master, tells us to. And so our submission to them is not absolute. Our submission to the authorities is because of our submission to God. 
It's not, and our, our submission to the authorities is not because we fear the authorities. Well, we don't fear them. We're not to be afraid of them. We are to fear God and honor them. In fact, we're to honor everyone in the way that's appropriate for who they are. Which is why that's what our Master wants us to do. We love God's people. We honor those in authority. The one we are to fear is God. Verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Now, this motivation for submission is very important because it shows us what to do when what, when what the authorities say and what God says clashes. If we were subjected to the authorities absolutely, then we would have to obey them absolutely. If we feared those in power, we would always capitulate to those in power. But if we submit ourselves to them for the Lord's sake, if he's the one we really fear, then, then when what the authorities say, or even when what the law says, contradicts what the Lord says, then we will do what the Lord desires. In fact, the only time we are to defy the authorities is when what they tell us to do goes directly against what God says to do. Because we can't do something for the Lord's sake when we know it's wrong. And we can't stop doing something for the Lord's sake if it's something that he's told us to do. So Peter himself, in Acts chapter 4, tells the Jewish authorities who would tell him to stop speaking about Jesus that we must obey God rather than man. Because God is an even higher authority than the ones he has placed over us. And if they tell us to do something he forbids or forbid us to do something he commands, then our obedience must go to him. And yet even then, we are not called upon to try and overthrow the authorities. We have to do what is right. And if we are caught, we mustn't defend ourselves violently. We must submit to the due process of law and endure whatever punishment we face as a result. Even if it's unjust. And we'll look a bit more at injustice in a few moments. Before we go to that, there's another thing here that we can learn from this section. And it's about the role of government. That's a kind of, it's actually incidental to Peter's argument. Uh, it's, but it's an important point it's in its own right. So I've put it on as, an, as an excursus. Because Peter says the government is there, in verse 14, to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Justice is a very important part of what the government's there for. I said it's incidental because Peter's actually not writing those who are part of the government. But if you are part of government, then look at what the implications are for you. Those who are appointed, those who work in the government, are appointed by God and will be accountable to the God of justice for their actions. So if you work for the government, make sure you uphold justice, won't you? Make sure that you are just and fair in all your dealings with the people you're meant to be serving. Now, don't just be a, a civil servant who just you know, goes along with everything everyone else goes on with. Avoid every temptation to corruption and favoritism. And make sure that with whatever influence you have, you uphold justice. And do what is right. Because government is meant to uphold justice. And that's first and foremost the role it has.
Right? So if you own part of it, God is watching you. Make sure you do it. Now the next relationship that uh, Peter talks about uh, is a relationship of slaves and masters. It's about relating to the boss. Um, the fact that he's talking about slaves might make you think that this doesn't apply anymore but the principles that we can learn here right, will still apply uh, in, in, in some ways okay, Anyway, the way some of you guys are working I think we might be tempted to think that slavery still exists in another form today uh, so here's what Peter says about slaves verse 18 slaves submit yourselves to your masters with all respect not only to those who are good and considerate but also to those who are harsh. So it's not just the good masters, the slaves that to submit themselves to, it's the, it's the bad ones as well. And they're to do it with all, actually, fear. Right, that's the actual word the NIV uses, uh, the, the actual word it, that the NIV translates as respect. Right? But in 1 Peter, fear is always directed to God. Right? So slaves are meant to submit to their masters in fear of God. And again, as we see, as in the case of government, it's not the master himself who is intrinsically worth the fearing, it's, it's God. And the slave submits to his master because of God. And so whether he's good and considerate, or whether he's nasty and harsh, it doesn't matter. He's not serving for the master's sake anyway. He's serving God. And that gives the slave an incredible freedom, doesn't it? His service comes from the heart for the Lord. It's not dependent on the, on the character and the motivation of his human master. Now how does this speak to us in our daily work? Well first of all we must remember that whatever we do we're doing it for the Lord. Or we might be working for our company, right? but the one we're really serving is the Lord. And we submit to those in authority over us in the workplace for the sake of the Lord. It doesn't matter if the boss is a great people person, is an inspiring, motivating leader, or it doesn't matter whether she recognizes your achievements. It doesn't matter whether he gives you words of encouragement when you do well or just increases your targets. You submit to him or her for the sake of the Lord. Now, surprising as it might seem to some of you, there are differences between your jobs and slavery, though. Okay? Depending on your job, depending how your workplace expectations are set up, the appropriate form of submission may mean obedience, or it may mean just respectful consideration of your boss's views. Um, it's different, depending on the workplace. And unlike in the case of slavery, obedience isn't always the expectation, you see, of the employee-employee relationship. It's that even so, it's limited, isn't it, to the job at hand. And so, if you're a secretary and the boss tells you to write a letter, you write a letter. But if your boss tells you to sing and dance, that might not be part of your job description, and you've got every right to refuse. And you still can refuse unreasonable instructions. You can say to the boss, no, I'm not going to work all those hours you've told me to work. It's, it's not in the contract, and you didn't tell me about it in the interview. Well, while I'm at work, I work for the Lord by serving my company, and... But the master I really serve has other things he wants me to do and I can't be serving my company 18 hours a day. So I'm drawing the line thus far and no more. But you can sometimes do that as an employee. Well, you can never do it as a slave. And the other thing you can do is get out, isn't it? Right? There may be times when you say, look, it's exceedingly difficult to submit to those in authority in this job. 
the expectation is unreasonable or it just doesn't fit with what I want to do. If I were a slave, I'd keep on doing it, but I'm not a slave, so I'm leaving. No? As long as you're there, you will serve faithfully. You'll work hard, you'll be fair, you'll be scrupulously honest, but you don't have to stay in the job forever. And most importantly, however, whether you're a slave or an employee, the boss tells you to do something illegal or immoral, then you don't do it. Because you're not really serving him, are you? You're serving the Lord. And so you do not fear him, even though he could sack you. You do not fear her, even though she could personally see to it that you never, ever, ever get a promotion again. Do not fear them. Even though they could withhold recognition for all the good work you've done in the past, you fear the Lord. Serve God, because He's in control. Your job, your life, your family, your future, that's in His hands. Fear God and do what is right. And usually that means submitting in some way to those in authority for the sake of the Lord, but, but sometimes we're involved saying no. Now if we work in this way, serving the Lord in our work, then generally I think we'd be pretty good employees. And bosses will like us. I mean, you know, who doesn't want an employee who is hardworking and fair and honest? The answer is some of your bosses, <laughs> who may not be like them. It may be because you're too honest and they want some degree of corruption. And so you get punished unjustly. Or maybe you've had to say no to them because they've asked you to do something against your conscience and you get blacklisted. It may mean that you're unwilling to let rule, work rule your life to the exclusion of family and ministry and so you're falling behind and, and other people who are willing to make career their idol are, are climbing up the ladder faster. And It's unfair. Or it may be that your good life actually shows up other people and instead of being attracted to it, they're resentful of it and you get ostracized at work and you may get discriminated against because of race or religion you can get out that's a reasonable thing to do because we have freedom but there may be times you choose to stay and endure discrimination and injustice in the workplace so that you can maintain a Christian witness there like we put up with equality and inequality in many areas so we can serve God in this nation where there's both a need and a hunger for the gospel and a lack of people equipped to take it out. And so when any of these things come into pl come, uh, are there, verse 19 comes into play. He says, if it, sorry, For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. See, whether you're a slave or free, if you put up with suffering because you know that what you're doing is right, God will reward you. If you are treated unfairly because you are mindful of God, God will commend you. If you are wronged because of your godly principles and priorities, God will honor that. Though we mustn't kid ourselves when we come to this kind of thing, isn't it? Right? If you're honest and the boss tells you off for it, then God will honor you. But if you're lazy and the boss tells you off for it, that's, that's your own fault. 
There's no glory in suffering for doing wrong. Just getting what you deserve. But if you suffer for doing right, then God is pleased with you. Verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you endure beating for doing wrong and endure it? Sorry, if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. See friends, God is the ultimate boss. God is the final judge. And he will ensure that justice is done in the end. So we mustn't get angry and frustrated when we suffer for doing good at work. Keep on respecting our bosses. Keep on submitting to him in a way that's appropriate for our situation. As long as what they say and you know what we're doing is right before God. And in the end, we're responsible to him. And we are to be willing to suffer unjustly because we're conscious of him. Being willing to suffer for doing good is commendable before God and will be rewarded by him. Now at this point you may be wondering if anyone else is trying to do this kind of thing. And the answer must surely be yes. We are trying. No, it's hard, but, but that's, that's how we all try to work, isn't it? So can I encourage you, when you go outside and have coffee and tea after the gathering, right, don't just talk about trivia, talk about what we've been saying. Ask each other, what's it like being a Christian at your workplace? How do you have to unjustly suffer? in your line of work. Do you ever miss out because of your convictions? Are you tempted to, to, to go along? Do you, you suffer for doing good? How do you deal with it? That would be really helpful, wouldn't it? For all of us to, to talk to each other about it. Can you, can you make an effort to do that? Just spur each other on to love and good deeds in the workplace. But the ultimate example of unjust suffering He's the Lord Jesus himself, isn't he? He never asks us to do what he hasn't done before. He's the model. He's the pattern that we should follow. And this is what Peter says in verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. See, Jesus was absolutely perfect, never did anything wrong. Didn't deserve anything bad to happen to him, and yet Peter says, quoting verse I, uh, sorry, Peter Peter says, quoting Isaiah 22, that he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. Right, we're not going to look up the passage uh, from Isaiah 53. I think it's quite familiar, and we went through it just a few weeks ago, didn't we? But the point that Peter is making is that that he's an innocent. Jesus is innocent and yet suffers the abuse of his tormentors. They mocked him, they spit on him, they killed him. And how does he respond? Verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. And instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. See, when people insult us, what do we want to do? We want to insult them back. When people slander us, when they treat us unjustly, we are tempted to say things that make them look bad, even though we have to exaggerate a little bit. And when people oppose us, we are tempted to threaten them, to attack them. But Jesus did none of those things. He entrusted himself to the Lord. He trusted that in the end, justice would be done. 
that he would be rewarded and his persecutors punished. He refused to take things into his own hands. He left it to God to vindicate him and left us an example to walk in. But what's so important about the example of Christ? Why is it necessary that we, that we actively and, and personally follow him? Why, why is his example so powerful? I mean, there's lots of people who have left us good examples that don't have to impact us in a, in a personal way. Well, remember verse 21. Because Christ suffered for you, on behalf of you. See, the sufferings of Christ weren't just an example in an abstract, impersonal way. It's different, isn't it? Because it's... Jesus and us. Christ was willing to suffer unjustly in obedience to God for, for our salvation. And brothers and sisters, because He was willing to do that, because He was willing to suffer in that way, then, then we can be forgiven. We are the beneficiaries of His non-retaliatory suffering. Our salvation was born out of His, his unjust suffering. Verse 24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. So that we may die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus himself bore our sins. In his body. He took our guilt and, uh, on himself. Peter says he did so on the tree. He, he means on the cross, which is, which is like a tree, you see. And he says, tree to remind us of an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 23. Which says that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Jesus is the one who bore our curse. Bore our sins, our punishment, our curse when he died there on the cross so that we can be forgiven and released and blessed. And so we who have benefited from his death must die to sins and live for righteousness. We who have benefited from, from what he has done are to follow in his example. We're not to live in a sinful way anymore, but for Jesus as our King. Verse 25 For you were like sheep going astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We lived a life of anarchy going our own way but Jesus is now our leader and we follow him. And his way leads to unjust suffering now and vindication and glory in the end. So brothers and sisters, let us live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's pray. Loving Father, we, we thank you that you do care for us. We thank you that, uh, uh, that you have shown your great love for us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you for that example that he left for us to follow, uh, being willing to suffer wrong for the sake of right and for the sake of our salvation he suffered. Father, help us now to uh, be willing to suffer injustice uh, for his sake as he was willing to suffer injustice for ours. Uh, help us to be willing to uh, submit to those in authority over us in a way that pleases you and for your sake. 
um, so that um, we may be good witnesses um, and that your light uh, might be seen in our lives. Help us, Father, to live such good lives among the pagans uh, that they may see our good works and glorify you on the day of your visitation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.